No, wait, did I say Spotify? I'm a fucking idiot. I meant Letterboxd. Um, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. that's yeah. less surprising because I know that they got, like, the Brat Pit Task Force. The Brat know? Pit Task Force, yeah. Yeah, what's his name? There was, like, a one guy who's, like, got totally, like, banned from the app, the, like, Stavi reviews. That are just, like, you know, I don't, I don't know not that serious. Hmm. He, he, like, had a bunch of reviews up there just, like, joking. Where, like, you know, he's, like, shitting on Knives Out saying that Jaws, you know, rips dick and just, you know, stupid shit. And <laughs> yeah. They banned him. Yeah. <laughs> That's messed up, man. Because, like, yeah. the the best poster on here was the guy that pretended to be Uwe Bull. Do you remember that? Oh, yeah. Yeah, that guy rocked. I knew, yeah. I had no idea if, like, I still don't know if that was, like, the actual, like, Uwe Bull or not. But oh, I'd, like, I'd, like to, I'd like to believe it was, you know. <laughs> uh, that'd be something. But, yeah. Um, well... Uh, hello and welcome to the Cinephile New Wave. I am Duran, and today I'm joined by Josh. Hello, thanks for having me. Would you like to uh, introduce yourself or plug anything, or do you want to just get, get right on going? Um, no plugs. I'm on Letterboxd and Twitter, Grown Woman Sober, on one of them. Um, but yeah, I, I, it, it's not that pressing now. No plugs. <laughs> alright, alright, no plugs, no plugs. We're just going in, going in dry. I like That's it. right. Dry run. Dry run. Um, but yeah, so you chose uh, the red shoes, and um, I'm gonna I'm gonna do a really quick synopsis of it just in case someone hasn't uh, seen it yet, which you should. Uh-huh. Um, but basically, it follows this um, this ballet dancer. Um, uh, what's her name? Victoria. Victoria Page. Right? Victoria Page. Yes, sir. And. Um, she, she, she's like a descendant of royalty or something, and then she meets um, uh, Boris Lermontov, who um, brings her into uh, his ballet company, and eventually, um, the fame kind of starts to affect her, um, and she has to choose between um, the uh, composer Julian Craster. Or, or her fame, because uh, Boris kind of puts this, I don't know, false dichotomy on her. Like, you gotta either stick with the ballet or go marry this dude. Classic, classic uh, one or the other type conflict. <laughs> classic one or the other. So, um, yeah, I was curious what, uh, what made you choose this movie. So, I'd seen this one some years ago. Um, I think I was still in college. It had to be like maybe 2019. Um, and I watched it on my phone actually because the Criterion app Hell just yeah. came out. And I was just, you know, laying in bed, you know, threw it on my phone just because I wanted to check out the app. Um, and I got really sucked into this movie that I'd never seen a Michael Powell or a Pressburger feature before. And, you know, within the first few minutes, you know, the color takes me in. And then before I know it, I've watched, you know, two hours and 15 minutes that is the red shoes yeah um, and I, I saw it that one time and it really stuck with me really energized me and got me into you know just the idea of the criterion channel in general just like wow what else is on here that you know i could just mindlessly just choose and it you know changes my rocks my world um so it's been a while since i'd seen it i wanted to see it on like an actual bigger screen rather than just you know chilling on my phone um so I, I decided to watch this one because I, I n- noticed you hadn't seen it either. 
And yeah. I think a lot of people would say it's a little bit foundational. Oh, um, yeah, certainly. For sure. Yeah, because, I, I, I mean, the charge has really been led in recent years by um, some of these older Hollywood figures who saw it when they were kids, or at least young adults, like Martin Scorsese, De Palma. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, Scorsese I think, like, De Palma said, like, it was his favorite film, right? Same with Scorsese at some point. Yeah, De Palma, I know he's he said that this is the film that made him want to be a filmmaker. Wow. <laughs> which, I mean, you can see a lot of the sort of um, similar, you know, intonations in their films, certainly. Um, and yeah, you know, I know Scorsese really led the charge on the restoration. Right, yeah. Um, and he's had a big hand on um, the Criterion edition in general. He, he does a little bit of commentary on the commentary track. Um, and yeah, so... So that's what really drew me to this was just sort of being like, okay, I've seen it once before. I need a, you know, rewatching is watching, and yep. yeah, I wanted to, uh, I wanted to check it out again because it's just gone a little misty in my mind, and I'm glad I did. Let me let me just say, of uh, all the movies to choose to watch on your phone, this is definitely the most interesting choice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, I, one would say that there's never a good film to watch on your phone, but yeah, this definitely. I, know, I feel I like mean, I feel like Soderbergh might disagree but um, you're right yeah uh yeah no i i mean i i i don't have like the best tv of like this kind of like 40 inch tv from like 12 years ago and like i i kind of knew um when i got like a little bit in that like yeah i should definitely watch this in a theater (laughs) yeah it it Um, seems like one especially with that uh that old school ratio yep where you know a theater's a good place to be for it for sure yeah but i mean um undeniably just what an incredible like visual experience the uh the three strip technicolor that uh, oh did you see the um the little like um scorsese featurette where he's going through the uh, restoration process i think i saw it way back when when i first saw it but i i gotcha. didn't uh i didn't recently gotcha yeah um yeah no because like um a lot of like color films are like in in, in general general kind of like bad shape especially like older color films um so mm-hmm. it's it kind of like amazing how they're able to like uh resuscitate this film back from the dead but yeah i mean like the um the cinematography and the technicolor are just like absolutely beautiful probably absolutely, like yeah. one of my favorite parts of the film i'd say mm-hmm. yeah i'd say if if this is in the public conscience if you were to ask you know just you know, your regular movie lover, you know, one thing about this movie that stands out to them, I think it would always be the color. Yeah, I mean, Jack Cardiff, their cinematographer, has become a little bit like uh, a mainstay in just the, I guess, zeitgeist when it comes to that. You know, you think of a classic uh, color cinematographer, he's the guy that always gets brought up, Jack Cardiff, for, I mean, stuff like this and all the other stuff he did with the archers. Right, right. Uh, yeah, I, yep. I, I, like, went through a bit of his uh, filmography, and, like, it seems like he kind of did a lot of the uh, Technicolor stuff that the archers mm-hmm. did, um, which, I mean, after this, I definitely want to go through, like, the rest of their stuff. Um, but, yeah, um, I, it, this was also kind of, like, um, at least, uh, the, one of the unfortunate things about this movie, I felt, is that there's not a lot of, like, good writing on it that I could find um Mm -hmm. i was really like looking for like a good essay that would kind of like um enlighten me to like part of the stuff i've missed because i'm sure like there's a lot of stuff i miss in this movie watching it on Mm -hmm. like you know my shitty 40 inch tv (laughs) um but i i think that like um 
this was one of the first films that was kind of like a a backstage film like like a movie about um the production of something Mm -hmm. because i know that like um this was more in the case for hollywood in like the 40s that there was like around this time there was a lot of like um movies about making plays like most famously like all about eve would be one of those And, and of course there were like more like allegories for um like filmmaking rather than like just being about plays so mm-hmm. yeah um i thought it was interesting as like one of the first movies that uh was kind of about like a production um i think also uh there was this this one movie i think came out like the year before called a double life um hmm. i saw that at the um the dc film noir film festival that was pretty good yeah i haven't, I haven't heard of that one yeah that's, that one's not bad but, uh... um hmm. I forget who the uh, actor in that is. So basically, it's about um, this. Du- it's directed by a G- uh, George Cooker, and it stars Ronald Coleman. And like, it's about this actor who kind of like loses himself in the acting, and mm-hmm. it kind of like turns him like insane. Kind of, kind of interesting. Yep. Yeah, some parallels to this one for sure. That's for sure. Yeah. Um, but yeah, uh, what were like um, some things that really like stood out to you uh, on your rewatch? Well, I think I definitely agree with the whole, you know, the interest lying uh, a great deal in it being sort of a film about process or creative process a little bit. Um, I think certainly there's a lot of sort of mirroring of, you know, uh, what goes on in the play and then what's going on backstage. I for, for this, you know, uh, mm-hmm. I sort of did a little bit of, you know, research that I might not have normally done. And as it turns out, uh, a lot of the uh, process for making this film sort of mirrors what goes on uh, in the film. So uh, there's like oh, a really? shot mm-hmm. where they're going through like the shoes, like trying to find the right shade of red. Lermontov is sort of going over all the different options. And he finally settles on the one right pair of red shoes. And that's it exactly how they did it you know when they wanted to find the shoes for the movie uh i i know some of the audition stuff um i forget who their original composer was um the archers for the few films before but they had a relative newcomer in brian easement easdale uh, who i think won the academy award for uh best score for this film Um, and he was relatively a newcomer like Hmm. you know julian craster Um, He worked on Black Narcissus with them. This, I think, was his second feature working with them. But um, I think there's a story that I heard in the commentary uh, that's on the Criterion channel where um, they talk about him auditioning for uh, the role of composer and having to sort of, you know, send the guy who they'd been working with all this time, you know, giving him the the kick out the door and there being like (laughs) hard feelings about that. Uh, as of course there is. Um, so I think it's really interesting that, uh, you know, the archers them being like a film company, uh, sort of almost independent of these other studios. Yeah. Um, it being like an artistic community of sorts. And then this being a film very much about a community. Um, I, I, I know I say that's, it's interesting that you say that you couldn't find a whole bunch of great writing on it. Um, just because, um, I think movies like this that are so, you know, 
big and have such a reputation, they get almost, uh, it's taken for granted a little bit that they are the movies that they are, and thus people don't feel the need to, you know, bolster them, you know. Yeah. Now. Yes, it's, it's I definitely agree. You know, shine the light. Yep. So I think that's interesting, and, and, you know, I think even now I, when I first saw it, uh, or when I just rewatched it, rather, I, I almost struggled to just think to myself, like, what's really, you know, what hasn't been said about this um, great film, but I was really taken this time watching it um, with the structure. I think the three-act structure is very clear and obvious, and... Mm-hmm in a way that almost mirrors like something like, you know, Shakespearean where you have, you know, the rise of Page and you have the rise of Craster and then you have that middle, you know, the actual play that goes on, the staging of it, which I'm sure we'll get to. Um, oh, yeah, and then you sure. have the fall. Like it has a very clear three-act structure that I think is very, um, very interesting. And I think it's very clear where the acts sort of lie um, and that was just one thing that I was really taken with was just how perfectly segmented it feels in those, you know, three parts. Um, and I do feel like the, the actual, you know, staging of the red shoes, I mean, what a way to break your movie just in half and interrupt everything and just, you know, have a flourish of, you know, 15, 20 minutes or so. I actually think it's longer if you count all the stuff, all the prep that they do and the, you know, the night of could say maybe like 30, 35, but, um, that's what really stuck out to me was, um, just the clear structure. And then of course, um, this cinematography, of course, the Jack Carter Mm -hmm. cinematography. And it, it tempted me to sort of, um, I had to, as soon as I finished it, I, I went and I looked, at Hitchcock's filmography and I because there I don't remember exactly where in the film but there's a big flash of red I think it might be during the red shoes um where yeah there's a big flash of red um Victoria sees red and it takes up all the screen it's Mm -hmm. like the clear the clear like flash of danger that red has comes to symbolize in this era and it made me wonder all, all right who did it first was it you know Palin Pressburger was a Hitchcock because he does that I think one two maybe three times. Yeah, and, and like uh, out, was, and like yeah. Vertigo and where else does he do that? Uh, I just saw Marnie actually Marnie? earlier this okay. month, and that's in there. And um, there has to be one other because I don't think he just does it. Oh, twice. Sure, it might yeah. be <laughs> it might be Frenzy that I'm thinking of his mm. his later work. Um, I could be wrong though, but I I, I noticed that um, the same year this came out. Hitchcock did his first color film, which right. was Rope. Right, right. So Rope in this movie came out around the same year, and uh, Hitchcock had to be cognizant of this film because I know f- for a fact uh, uh, Michael Powell worked under him whenever Hitchcock oh, was. Oh, interesting! I didn't know that. Um, yeah, he he. I, I don't remember what exactly um, he did. I think he was just at first like the gopher boy who ran and did errands and then he eventually worked his way into doing title cards for uh these hitchcock films Hmm. so i'm sure that you know alfred hitchcock you know them both being english directors and them having a working reputation i mean undeniably like the most important english directors around this time along with like david lean probably yep absolutely yep yeah um it's kind of interesting that you mentioned that uh powell was doing title cards for hitchcock because actually that's how hitchcock got his start in the silent era yeah, there's definitely like a sense 
in the film industry around this time of like you earn the role you eventually get which i think again right. is mirrored in this film like i feel like there's so much mirroring with you know the filmmaking process and the community that it fosters and the ballet uh, uh community that we get in this film and yeah that's what really jumped out to me was again the color and just trying to i trying to figure out where you know the influences later on where yep. those might lie in this film and i think definitely that sort of flash of red i think that has big repercussions down the road and that's just one little instance of the color being being used yeah um yeah earlier you mentioned um how the uh the like tight three-act structure kind of like stood out to you this time and mm-hmm. um yeah i mean the film is actually is very very simple really um but and and like how i really like how you said um that there's kind of this sense that uh there isn't really too much to be said about the movie because it, it is kind of like perfect and and it, it's it's kind of like untouchable in, in some way it, it's like it's very very it is very simple um on a level of like plot but also i i feel like it has this feeling of like an instant classic um mm-hmm. and pauline kale's review she said something kind of interesting she said that um it's undeniably some kind of classic which is i think a great <laughs> like bit of a sentence there because like it's extremely hard to categorize this film um mm-hmm. and, and like some of the essays i've been reading about it like um you know is this people are saying like is this like a musical is this like a drama is this some kind of like fantasy thing i mean it's really has like all these all these different elements together um which is uh why like i would love to do some more reading about the archers because i'm not too familiar with them myself um and like how they were able to kind of like cultivate this artistic community that, that like you were talking about that seems like really interesting yeah it definitely also i'd say has this um trans european feel to it mm-hmm. um they go to monte carlo they go to paris um you know you get that later montage after the red shoes um sequence where they're just you know victoria's doing ballet after ballet after ballet all around the world and i think that was certainly a part of the of the archers a little bit i mean this is post world war uh, yep. two and it definitely has that feel a little bit which i think is just a natural consequence of you're making the film after World War II. It's just going to have that sort of um, feel to it, naturally. Yeah, um, actually, um, it's funny because a lot of, some of the critics at the time like criticize it for being un-British, um, hmm. which is, I think, kind of true because uh, it is definitely more international yeah. than national. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, mentioning the post-war thing, I saw something about that um, uh, I think, I forget if it was Howler Pressburger who said this. It was one of them. They said that, like, um, this movie was kind of shifting away from the, uh, like, nationalistic um, mentality that we have to, like, win the war and onto, like, uh, like, that being, like, the kind of, like, grand meaning of that time to now, like, we're focusing on art or something like that, which, like, I, I have no idea really what that means. <laughs> but it is kind of an interesting thing. Well, I was thinking about it as I was watching it because I knew sort of this is 1948. This film is being made, 
And I did get the sense almost of, I don't know if this is overall true, um, but a sense of escape uh, in, you know, almost not even blatantly mentioning the war outright yeah. in any part of it of, of, I wonder if that was, you know, wanted by audiences. Um, I mean, they did the, the Colonel Blimp film, I think, in 46, so they had already touched hmm. the war to some extent. And, you know, there's only so much you can talk about, you know the world war even though it is you know world changing event you know i'm sure you know you make a big 3 hour film about it um i think that was actually a film about world war 1 I, I can't remember but either way uh, you want to you want to press on and you know do yeah, something I mean, else i'll see yeah the guys made like enough british films like leave them in the, leave leave them alone <laughs> yeah <laughs> um but, but yeah um i think that uh if I'm being honest, though, the the film I think overall left me a little bit cold. Um, mm-hmm. I I think that the um, the introduction of the tension between um, her lover and like her work was kind of like a little bit late. I felt that like a lot of the beginning of the movie was kind of just moving the plot forward. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I I don't know if you'd agree with me there. Is there like something from like? So think of like um, everything before the the red shoes sequence. What was there like something there that kind of like drew you in um, that you found like interesting? Because honestly, like that part of the movie was kind of losing me. I think that it's interesting that we're getting two separate, um, you know, ways into who I think is the genuine uh, main character of our film, which is Lermontov. I think this is his film, mm. um, and I think that. Page and Craster both serve to sort of enter enter his psyche in different ways. Um, I mean, he's cold towards both of them. He really, you know, puts them um, sort of in their place right away. Craster and Page both, you know, struggle to get in, even when they are allowed in. You know, they have to really, you know, that's just step one is getting in. Um, and I think that they both serve to sort of work out these different parts of him. Like, I know hmm. uh, Raster, for example, the way he sort of, you know, he brings the entire band out to rehearsal to fix a few notes. And just the way that, you know, you're thinking, what is Lermontov thinking? And he's, you know, silently impressed, quietly waiting in the wings. That, you know, you're, we're, we're figuring out sort of what exactly it is that wins him over, that, you know, pulls him out especially since he himself seems at a uh, transitional time since his main um dancer you know she goes off pregnant and to be married yeah so he's he has this bitterness he, we see what it takes to make him upset which is seemingly everything he's a he's a fussy great artist um and i think it's it's really what's gonna their rise is sort of rising to his favor because you really can't rise in this company without being beholden by him. Um, right. And I think that's, for the, for the first act, that's what really sort of draws me in a little bit, is, is what are the idiosyncrasies that sort of make these two newcomers, what makes them sort of um, these sort of big, bright figures to Lermontov? I mean, we see it outright, mm. because, you know, it's their point of view. You know, we want them to sort of win over Lermontov's favor, um, but he, him, he himself is more of a mystery, and I think it's figuring out 
that mystery that's part of the fun of the first act for me at least i mean there's that yeah. really great shot um in the very opening where uh he's sort of just a hand he like comes out into the uh into the the opera box or the ballet box or whatever and he has this guy and was speaking for him whenever victoria page's mom is trying to like right. get them to go to the party he's just like a hand and he's like this this mystical figure off in the wing we don't really get a clear glimpse of him or we do for just moments I think the film does a good job of sort of working him out to be this sort of mysterious figure who, yeah, uh, through these two different people, we get two different ways of seeing how he sort of works. I think it's really interesting how, like, uh, even at the end of the film, we never really, like, understand what his deal is. Mm -hmm. Kind of like, uh, I mean, you get kind of like a sense that, like... um, it seems that either like art or being in control of the company is um, his kind of like main deal, but there's never really like any like psychologizing of him. Whereas the um, motivations behind Victoria and like Julian are like pretty clear. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think like this is kind of what makes him such like a interesting and like powerful and like frankly very like terrifying figure is that you never <laughs> you never really like you never really get a glimpse of his mind or really like how he works at all. Mm-hmm. Yeah. To that point, I think there's a few great scenes where when he is upset, the Mike, Michael Powell gives him room to sort of simmer. We get these, mm-hmm. I wouldn't say they're, they're long stretches, but they're short stretches of him sort of, you know, pacing around a room or looking over a note just with his, you know, his eyes glowering. I think Adolf Wolbrook, the the actor that plays Boris Armentov, I think he's tremendous in this movie um, because I think you know this is a movie where a lot of you have a lot of new actors. I know he wanted yeah um, for most of the ballet dancers, he wanted people that could dance rather than act. That was his that was his primary focus. Right. And so I think which is incredible really how he out. found Victoria Page because she's also just an incredible actress as well. <laughs> yeah, I was I was. I forgot that when I first saw it, I just assumed in my mind that she was this, you know, Hollywood, you know. Yeah, me too. Just great. And then, you know, as I'm watching it, I'm like, oh, Moira Shearer. I haven't, like, what else is... And yeah, she's not, like, a film, you know. Yeah, I mean, I think she was, like, like in a couple of, like, Powell films and some other, like, obscure stuff. But yeah, really, mm-hmm. like, not that much. Yeah, a dancer first, for sure. She has a moment in the uh, Criterion commentary where she, it, it, I think it took her over a year to be won over um, by Powell to do this film. Wow. That was almost, you know, <laughs> she still almost didn't want to do it. She just felt, like, too pestered to say no. Um, and she talks about how it came at a critical time in her career when she just started, you know, doing these big roles like Victoria Page does. And, mm. again, that's an instance of, you know, the reality of the filmmaking process of the time mirroring you know, what we're seeing on, on the screen. Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, and there's also like kind of like another level to that because the um, the story within a story also like mirrors what's happening in uh, the plot of the movie. Uh, like the Red Shoes story, it's like obviously like an allegory for what um, Victoria goes through. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's definitely part of its brilliance. I mean, I think that entire entire Red Shoes sort of, it's interesting that this starts off uh, the the process of making this film starts off with just the Red Shoes story being sort of mangled and turned into this other thing by by Pressburger 
um, because mm-hmm. really even even the Han, Hans Christian Eriksson or Anderson um, Hale is pretty. It's it's not really what we get in the play at all. No, it's, yeah, it, yeah. I think it's more of like a religious allegory about you know sin and vanity, um, whereas the Red Shoes play is about dance. You know, it's about it's a very simple tale told about you know the I guess the master of puppets um, in the shoemaker <laughs> being sort of mirrored by Lermontov, which I think is really interesting that even though it's being based on a red, the Red Tails by Anderson, it's not at all. Even the little bit that's supposed to be dedicated to adapting his story is not at all <laughs> what what we actually get. Yeah, um, although, like, uh, yeah, and then the, um, the parts about uh, the dangers of, like, fame and, and greed and that kind of thing like i guess get more reflected in the um the plot of like the actual movie mm-hmm. um but yeah let's uh let's talk about that amazing red shoe sequence because that was absolutely incredible completely blew me away the the thing that stood out to me the most about that entire thing was how um there was no sound whatsoever besides the music mm-hmm. um and i think like there's something that um, Lermontov was repeating uh, to Victoria before about how, like, the music is the only thing that matters. Like, only listen to the music. Blah, 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 blah. Um, I thought that was kind of interesting. And, and, it, and it made, like, a lot of the, um, uh, like, fantastical parts of it um, even, like, creepier. So, like, when the parts when um, she sees, like, uh, Craster or, like, Lermontov um, on stage uh, and these kind of, like, strange visions that she has. Or, like, that um, that really weird, like, double exposure where um, she sees herself in the shoes before putting them on. Um, I think, like, without, like, any other sound effects, it, it makes the whole thing a little bit, like, creepier. Um, I don't know, a little bit, like, more eerie. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think that... St- even before we we get the red shoes, um, you know, playing out before the audience, we get all the backstage stuff, and the music that Craster, you know, wrote and is conducting, is playing all underneath that. And you know, you spoke earlier about you know different critics saying, well, this is hard to categorize. What is it? Is a is it you know a fantasy? Is it a romance? Is it a musical? Mm-hmm. I felt like it was most a musical in those moments where. You know, you get all the, you know, last minute, frantic, running back and forth, people here and there, characters doing, you know, God knows what. And the music is all, you know, playing underneath it. That was definitely when I felt like it was most uh, oriented towards the musical was just, you know, I'm being steered by the music as I'm watching without even, you know, I was forgetting that the music was even there. And then, you know, eventually you're brought back by Craster just finishing the piece. And I think that that definitely, you know, heightens that feeling of whenever we finally get into the play of, you know, no sound effects needed almost. Like, mm-hmm. you, you, while you noticed it, I, I I'm, it's interesting that you said that because I didn't. I almost didn't oh, uh, really? huh. catch that little bit that, oh, we're not getting sound effects because I was already, I guess, being guided so well by the music um, to a certain extent. And that was what really impressed me i think about this big sequence i mean i think there's mm-hmm. better parts about it of course uh which we'll get into but i i 
think it's a beautiful way to set it up is just having that um, sort of, I think it's called an overture, or that introductory piece that Craster plays for the audience being our way of, you know, the movie almost engaging with it. And that's our, you know, that's the thing that moves the camera when we're even just backstage. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think, like, even before uh, there's, like, that scene where um, Craster is doing some revisions to the uh, the Red Shoes score, and he, like, plays certain notes to try to, like, sound, like, certain, like, sound effects. Like, mm-hmm. um, he plays, like, something that sounds like a church bell ringing or something like that. Yes. Or, like, um, I think, like, uh, he also does something with, like, uh, sounds sounds kind of like a, like church music, I guess, uh, and then, like, mm-hmm. a certain part. So yeah, um, I mean, yeah, that could be another reason why uh, why you didn't notice that because, uh, like you said, it's kind of like all in the music. The music's like um, guiding this entire thing to the point where um, you don't need anything else. Absolutely, yeah, I, I I remember that, and I yeah, I think that is the thing that sort of as you're watching it unfold, sound effects come out in that way, and. Yeah, I, I think it's interesting also that you you mentioned the words creepy and eerie, which was another you know I'm I'm taken by the fantastical nature of it, the almost opulent visuals. So it's interesting mm. that the, the the creepiness and the almost freakiness of I guess like yeah the shoemaker and you know her being drawn further into this sort of nightmarish um, situation, especially yeah. towards the end of the play where I mean she's dead and there's just like hard gray cobblestone and. Right, yeah, the color is kind of, like, gone besides yeah. uh, her shoes, yeah. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, like, I mean, some of those images, like, I think midway through that sequence, like, um, it turns a little bit darker. There's a bit, there's, like, this combination of, like, blacks and reds. Um, mm-hmm. I forget, I forget who it is, but there's this, um, like, close-up of, this, like, this guy, like, with his mouth open. Um, <laughs> like, very, very, like, dark blacks, very, very dark reds. Yeah, that was, that was mm-hmm. very uh, disturbing. Yeah, and then on top of that, I think um, the thing that upon rewatching it that I almost forgot about that really took me was um, the moments that are almost feel like sped up. Um, I, mm-hmm. I think I, when, when I was listening to the commentary, uh, Jack Cardiff mentions that that was him sort of speeding up the frames per second, and that that was almost uh, I don't know if that was exactly an innovation of his, but that was just um something that you know michael uh pal sort of diverted to his knowledge to do and that you know it feels so alive even still all these all these years later i think there's it's um the exact thing i'm thinking of was that that she has a knife and then she grabs it and it turns into a flower yeah. and it's dropped yeah, yeah. and it turns into a knife again and yes that 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 still feels so um almost breathtaking in a way just yeah. to see it that, that that really amazed me i really like that part um yeah i was i was reading something about that too i forget where um i remember saying something uh, about how like at a certain point he would change the the frame speed so it appear as if the um the dancers were like in air for a little bit longer than they actually were yep uh, yeah just, and I, I, I didn't notice that at all like while watching it <laughs> i think i'll just like yeah no it's definitely it, it feels in some parts totally natural and then in other parts totally unreal as as it's being made to seem. Yeah, I yeah. There's definitely caused, like uncanny like effects in some of the parts. Yeah, absolutely, and I know it caused some 
uh, controversy when it was released among um, ballet aficionados and stuff like that. They they really um, they didn't take to the idea that this was a filmmaking sequence. That this is something that moves in the mode of a movie rather than an actual ballet, which it is supposed to be. You know, ideally, they you know. They were even even more sure. She has a, a a part where she mentions that they could only film a few seconds at a time before it was you know cut. They could never mm. really get their momentum. Even she has a certain distance from the sequence because she you know her as a dancer, her natural thing is to just go and dance. Don't you know cut it up and it's a you know the illusion making of it. You know gave rub people wrong. They didn't. They didn't care for that part. They wanted to see dancing, and instead they got um, a, a film sequence of, yeah. of magic almost. And, and yeah, it it definitely, you know, all these years later, it, it that's the thing we love about it. But back then, that was, you know, it was almost uh, sacrilege yeah. to uh, the art of dancing. Yeah, I'm really, I'm really glad that you mentioned that because, um, like, on the surface, the, the whole sequence appears, like, theatrical sense you know it's this like huge production but i think like a lot of movies when they try to um film like scenes that take places take place in plays or operas or whatever um result in like very kind of like boring uh uh ways of ways of shooting whereas this is like this is purely cinematic like what like what you were saying like um which is really funny because it's it's doing it's it's compl- it's purely cinematic and in, in the way and like how like um with the camera angles the way that it's edited um but it's portraying this like very theatrical scene it's kind of like um you know like andre bazan talks about the, the french critic uh, about how like in order to uh, portray reality in cinema you have to create like artifice so mm-hmm. like basically creating like something artificial that's more real than reality. Uh, I think that's a great example here. Oh yeah. Yeah, and it it brings to mind just um throughout, you know, cinema history these different opportunities that directors or um you know, all of them together the the collaborations, you know, it's almost a opportunity in the film to just relish all these things like i think of the stargate sequence in 2001 where it's just you know some people would call it pure cinema where it's Mm. you know an opportunity to just stop and you know almost self-indulge in image and you know color picture all these things that make it you know almost feel close to painting which Mm. in this it certainly it certainly is because we just have those beautiful backdrops oh yeah done for sure. by the yeah production designer hein heinrich um i mean him collaborating with jack cardiff with his color and his light it's all just you know it's just an opportunity to even though we're getting interestingly uh like a look into um victoria's psyche because it really does stop being a play almost and it, it is just almost her thoughts unspooling Especially yeah. since we get, you know, visions of Craster and visions of Lermontov in there and um the audience image drops out completely. Um yeah. it, it becomes this Yeah, didn't she say that like um uh she wants to put like a wall between her and the audience 
when she was like yeah, asked she, like how she's gonna react on like opening night. Yeah, interestingly, it's she's going to war with the audience, hmm. which is even you know that's fascinating, and I think that Emma has implications beyond just this sequence, where it's you know, I mean, we just talked about uh, the first act. I think that's that's almost where um, I do get the sense of like wartime preparation in the first act where it's you know all these things that are like (laughs) hard and like you know almost procedural and drilling yourself and Mm. the other people around you and you know figuring out who you can trust and then the actual thing comes and it's almost made easy because you did all that um all that preparation yeah Um, i can definitely relate to that as a guy who like worked on like a lot of high school plays (laughs) yep Mm mm-hmm yeah, the the actual day comes and it's it's no sweat because all these days before you did the stressing then rather than, you know, having to worry about it now, which, you know, is is ideal. Uh so I think that phrasing of I'm going to war with the audience, I I, I find that, you know, that has so many levels and that's, you know, just a beautiful bit of writing by Emmerich Pressburger there. Yeah, for sure. Um But yeah, um that sequence uh so many things can be said about that uh something that stood out to me i I was kind of wondering whether or not the backgrounds were um intentionally like exaggerated like whether they were supposed to be um the actual backgrounds that were used in the the real production or if Mm -hmm. like they were more just kind of like the imagined backgrounds in like the mind of victoria um Mm -hmm. and i really liked how that entire sequence like really rode the line between um like her subjectivity and like what was actually like going on um during like the the play and like yeah some some parts i really like couldn't tell uh which was which which i thought was interesting because like um you're in it the entire time like there's no like cutaways to the audience um Mm -hmm. you're completely like absorbed in like the act it's almost it's like watching um a movie in like a dark room surrounded by like um hundreds of other people but um you're not noticing anything except for the flashing images on screen Mm -hmm. yeah i mean there's even um little little moments such as when the the women get lifted up and they turn into clouds and then they turn into flowers yeah that was great um scorsese in his in the commentary for criterion he mentions how he almost feels like it's too much like they like kind of screwed it up a little bit there he says it's like (laughs) watching like a gambler on like a hot roll like just you know put down too much money and like you know he's just on a roll like let him do his thing like there's gonna be some slips but like just the highly exaggerated nature of it Hmm. um i mean i think there's so many individual images you could pull out of it i mean right after that you have um uh image i particularly like is whenever right after that sort of exaggerated little bit where they turn into clouds uh you have the crashing waves um sort of superimposed on top of where the audience should be and something about that um is not just beautiful to look at but i think it, it it tells us that She's in her she's in her element so so much that it's like she's dancing alone. Like she might as well be on a beach, um, in those moments where you know it's just her on stage. Then, and I think that's especially beautiful. And then it leads us right into uh, another interesting bit, which is her walking off stage, and the movie almost like takes a breath. 
where she's off stage, she's wiping her face, she's like cleaning up, and then she goes right back out. And I think that was very interesting little, you know, breaking of the of the sequence to just sort of, you know, let us catch our breath and you know, there's a part where Lermontov says he wants them to clap in the middle rather at the end. Whoever he says it to, like laughs at him almost in disbelief, and we get that moment there where Victoria goes off stage for half a second and the audience is clapping, <laughs> and then she runs right back out. Um, which isn't ever addressed, but it's a you know beautiful little detail, you know a nice little callback to the thing that Lermontov says he wanted that he gets um, through this you know spectacular sequence. Yeah, um, and going off kind of what what you were saying, uh, like this this is a great example of how um, uh, the act can like completely like absorb an actor. And, like I like I like how you said how. Um, there's kind of this sense that like she's kind of dancing for herself she doesn't even notice the audience she's just completely like consumed by by this role um and some other i think some other movies that do this too are uh the um a double life the george cooker movie i talked about before and also like recently with drive my car i think that that oh, yeah. movie does that really well too like um when um uh the main character in that is playing uh, uncle vanya um there's kind of like a similar scene and in, in, uh from what you were talking about where like he walks off stage and just completely exhausted and like out of breath. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, yep. Yeah, and it, it's interesting that I feel like this almost does something a little bit different, where it's it's almost not so much that she's being absorbed by the role because she goes on to do so many other roles, but I see it almost as like uh, like a warning, like a foreboding, like this mm. this thing that she's acting out that you know because we there's. Um, visions of of Craster and Lermontov as the sort of uh, shoemaker um, that, you know, it eventually all comes true. This thing that she's acting out is almost her participating in her own premonition um, of what's to follow. Um, And I think that's really interesting. uh, And almost is its own unique Thing that I'm not sure I've seen in any other film. It, it recalls something like, you know, Fire Walk With Me, where Laura just, you know, she's constantly seeing these visions. Mm. And that's that's almost what it reminds me of more than something like um, Drive My Car, where it's definitely there, that, that sense of um, how to sequence uh, what's on stage versus what the film can show us and offering us the viewer something, you know, impossible if we were just sitting in a, in a seat. And the way that, you know, the acting can start to sort of take over who we are. But I almost think that by the end, Victoria, that's what she wants, that she's not afforded that opportunity to be anyone. She's just, you know, Victoria, the wife to Julia, Julian Craster. And by the end, that's, that's what she wants. She wants the opportunity to do the thing she loves, which is dancing. And... It's interesting to think, yeah, that we're almost speaking about it as if it's acting when it's dancing, which is yeah. really interesting to, like, I guess, sort of try and draw a line between where the dancing is and where the acting is. I guess, yeah, if, especially you know, because, like, the the actress herself was a dancer, like you mentioned before. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, I'm sure if we if we were dancers ourselves, we could we could, you know, speak more to that. But, <laughs> um. <laughs> I unfortunately do not have that perspective. Yeah, I just, you know, catch me in the club with a few drinks in me. You know, I don't think oh, that's yeah. that's quite Victoria Page level. Yeah, um, this white boy going crazy in the club. Yeah, that's right. Go to it with the sauce. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think 
yeah, it, it speaks to so many different, you know, it, the fact that it is placed so neatly in the middle of all these things does give it this layering effect where yeah. it's not only serving as this total tonal pause uh, on the plot, uh, it's, I mean, it's kind of not because we're, you know, there's all these sort of clues and indicators and um, symbols, you know, sort of being sparked. Yeah, it's like sim- simultaneously like a reflection of like what happened earlier, but also like continuing the plot. Interesting. Yeah, it's. Yeah. And then it's interesting that almost right after that, we get that montage of her going sort of to all these different places. Sort yeah. of just, you know, making it the big. It's almost like a big jump forward in the narrative that this sort of marks um, us as the audience. We know almost this story it's so familiar to us that's why you know earlier i mentioned like shakespearean where it's i feel like there's a lot of sort of gaps in this movie where they almost don't even feel like gaps because you just intuitively you know can say to yourself ah yes you know she's rising to fame and glory and it 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 can do just the bare minimum to sort of signal that to us and we can just go on with the backstage drama so naturally and just know that she's in this totally different place after this sequence right yeah yeah that's interesting um yeah the, the simplicity is uh, is really what like stuck uh stuck out to me there related to what you were saying um you you always kind of like have a sense of like what's going on and like what's going to happen i think um roger ebert like wrote in his review that of course like the ending is shocking the fact that like she throws herself in front of a train and dies, but there is this mm-hmm. kind of like this sense that um, this story has to end in, in that kind of way. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, there's there's definitely always that you know sense of once you sort of know that the red shoes is sort of coming to formulate in her in her life. There's always that. I, I do feel like it's quite shocking mostly because you always wonder if the film is really going to go there because it, yeah. the whole time it feels like, you know, this beautiful opulent melodrama that's, you know, almost very down to earth. And it's not until, you know, that big sequence where we get something, you know, almost fantastical and unreal. And then we're brought back down to earth again in a way. And the fact that it just, you know, that it ends how it does, I think, uh, we we dip our toes a little bit back into that unreality, where it's you know, not just ha- it's not just the fact that she she dies in the end. It's the fact that she like that it's grisly. Like it's yeah, the thing that stuck out to me the first time I watched it and returning to it, you know, before I sat down and watched it for a second time was that image of the jet black train, just total black, not a you know not mm. a speck of silver or metal on it, just all black um you know when when you speak of their use of color it's of course always pointed towards you know the beautiful reds and the different way that just you know the rooms are designed and but that black i think is really heavy and really affecting and yeah i I yeah just kind of like destroying the color yeah it's it's interesting because i feel like the first time i watched it i never even though we saw it all playing out in a way that is in the red shoes, like, okay, now this has to happen. And then of course this will happen. I never felt the first time I saw it, that it was ever going to go there. 
um, and yet it does, which is, um, I think, part of its its greatness is just that it's willing to you know take us to the brutal end, not just an end, but uh, yeah, a rather stark. Yeah, no, it, it's it's pretty disturbing. <laughs> I uh, yeah. I did not expect her to like I don't know, jump like a hundred feet and get hit by a train. That's definitely something <laughs> yeah. I didn't expect. Yeah, that was that was yeah, pretty crazy. She, yeah, she swanton bombed right on the tracks. <laughs> That's for pretty sure. Rough. Um, so yeah, let's um. I guess before we wrap up, I'd like to uh, talk a bit about um the uh rough position she's put in between um uh julian and like her love of dancing um so i i felt that i i think that like you know if you're gonna be like a uh what's it called like cinema sins type guy uh there there wouldn't be that much effect to this like um you know quandary that she's in um because like you could say oh like Lermontov is, is is being bad or like Julian is like not like acting rationally or like she could just go and act in like some other kind of like um stage production for sure but I think that like um with how the way that like Lermontov uh is like presented throughout the entire movie like I think that's what 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 makes this like so difficult to her because he's like you know this like ultimate figure of authority and he says that like um you know that you'll never be satisfied if uh, you're not, like, working on stage with me, which I think mm-hmm. is, is interesting. Um, but, yeah, also, like, I think Julian's reaction to this is, is like, pretty bad. <laughs> um, uh, in the sense that, like, yeah, I mean, he's, he, like, he's, like, not, like, uh, taking her, like, perspective into, like, account at all. Um, which maybe, like, um, signals some kind of, like, a transformation in him from, like, this kind of, like, humble, uh, like, music student until, like, now, like, this kind of, like, big orchestra dude. Um, and maybe, like, the, the ego's kind of, like, going to his head, too. Yeah, I don't know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that, that makes sense to me. Because I remember when I was, when I was seeing it again, uh, you know, the big climax where she's in the room about to go on stage, you know, thinking to myself, there's got to be a, a better option here than just, you know. But I think I think the film is so steadfast in wanting to replicate this play that it's it's standing almost, Julian's almost standing on principle in knowing yeah. that, okay, if you do go on stage in any capacity, you know, it's almost not the fact that she's going on stage, it's that you're now, you know, under his possession in a way. And I think there is that mysterious little... Um, sort of that that thing that we mentioned before where it feels like Lermontov is unknowable in a Mm -hmm. sense and I think one question I I have no matter you know how many times I see it is is in what respects does he just want his dancers to be pure and beholden to him and working hard no other you know focuses anywhere and how much of it is almost a romantic inkling on his part on you know his on that you know, level of duty to him being something wrapped up in some, you know, if this was Hitchcock's movie, he, he would be some sick, twisted, you know, yeah. guy who wraps up, you know, the, you know, servitude to him with his like sexual desire or something right. like that. And I do feel like there are these almost unspoken um, twinkles in his eye where he's, he sees Victoria as um, his girl in a way. 
in this unspoken where the the labor yeah. is a labor of love and i i wonder if julian in these moments um picks up on that or feels that himself in a way like is this just a woman um choosing between uh her work and her love which on face value i think that's what Powell wants us to take away and and ed fressberger want us to take away but you know i sometimes as just like a dude i like see it and i'm like is this just two winging dicks fighting over (laughs) the same woman um and i I wonder if julian in any way takes it to that extent yeah it could be that too um although i think it's really interesting how i mean there's definitely like this sexual aspect to um lermontov's like uh control over his dancers but also I, i feel that like in in a strange way, like the sexual part is almost like undermined by his need to like control, as if like that's just the the controlling is like the main the main thing there. And of course, it's like tied with sexuality in a way. But um, it's like he doesn't he doesn't like really want to like enact like any kind of like uh, sexual desire. Uh, which I thought, I thought it's, was uh, interesting. it's yeah, it's in the getting what he wants part. Yeah, that's like yeah. I could, uh, yeah, I know exactly what you mean, yeah. And I think it's really interesting, too, that we get a scene where um, I think they're both sort of laying in bed in their separate, you know, postcode yeah. beds, um, <laughs> where they're both, like, up at night, you know, restless um, over what I, I can't remember. But Julian is able to stand up, get out of bed, and go to his piano. And he plays it, you know, beautifully as he does. He, he turns to something that he do to sort of you know get out of his head a little bit and victoria stands up and she sees him she's like admiring him and oh he's playing beautifully that's my husband the beautiful composer mm-hmm. and then she goes and she picks out the red shoes out of her out of her um dresser and we get that wonderful push in to sort of you know keep it all in one take um where we see the red shoes and she she's you know she what can she do? She the thing that she does that is her chosen, um, I guess, lo- labor of love is is inaccessible to her because she needs all these different things. She needs the stage. She needs the production. Mm-hmm. She needs you know Lermontov to sort of enact this thing that she, she does. Whereas you know Julian, it's easy for him because all he needs is the piano and he can have his music. Whereas she can't just have her dance because it requires so so much that Lermontov has the keys to. Yeah, you know? and like yeah, Julian is like completely like uncap- incapable of like understanding any of this, whereas mm-hmm. like she like uh, very clearly like I think has like a, a better idea of like what's going on, which is, like I think is why like she chooses to commit suicide because she knows that either way um, there's like there's like no there's no way to like resolve this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, I, and you know, I, I think with it being a film about artistic community, I think it certainly um, sort of highlights the difficulty it can be to sort of be out of your, you know, chosen collaborative space. Mm-hmm. Um, I know that um, Michael Powell himself, after he made Peeping Tom, that was such a big controversy around it, the, the psychosexual violence of it, that... He barely touched filmmaking ever again. Like the fragility, yeah. I feel of of collaboration, of artistic collaboration, um, 
it's it's almost um, an inevitable thing that that once it breaks, it's it's almost gone. It, it reminds me a little bit of uh, that part where Julian and Victoria are on that sort of horse carriage ride by the sea, mm-hmm. and them, you know, Julian speaking out, you know, oh, this is the moment that I was happiest. You know, it's gonna come, it's gonna go. It's like this fragile, precious, precious thing. Um, and I think, yeah, a lot of the third act, I, I guess you could say, um, sort of explores the, the fragility of just being, being on top. Because, yeah, I think, yeah, as, as I've said, the clear structure of it, this clear, you know, rise and fall, you know, I think it's interesting that it takes that little time to sort of give us a, a respite before it, you know, the fall. Because the fall is right. never like a clear fall. It's never like a crash and burn. Almost like a subtle, you know, move away. Um, so I think it's interesting that it takes that that space to sort of be like ah, like this precious thing. Like it'll come, it'll go, but it does have to go. Yeah. Um, and speaking of like uh, this like artistic community that they cultivated, uh, I think the film does a really good job of um, portraying how um, uh, an artist's desire to make like great art can like kind of slowly eat away at, like, all other aspects of their lives. So, I mean, like, obviously, like, uh, Victoria's relationship with Julian is affected here. And, um, I mean, I'm, I'm reading this uh, biography on, like, Sam Peckinpah right now. And, like, it's it's very clear how his, like, megalomania just, like, completely, like, ruined all of his relationships, <laughs> like, his entire life. I mean, he was an alcoholic. He died due to his alcoholism. Um, mm-hmm. and of course, like, he was a, he was, like, a, a womanizer, too. Um, just, like, this, like, complete, like, dedication to your art really, like, just, um, it, it can, it can really kill you if you're not careful. Yeah, and, I mean, for sure, with this being, I think, Lermontov's film, it's, it's certainly, uh, uh, another conflict going on is almost that, like, nurture versus nature, thing where yes you have to have like the hardened you know general leading the troops you know preparing them for the worst that can happen um just sort of you know riding everyone's ass and you also have to have the ability to sort of you know nurture different parts of different people's personalities which i think is why uh so frequently artistic collaboration in these big you know especially in filmmaking where you have big sets lots of moving parts lots of different you know, if you're a director or producer, relationships you have to foster. Yeah. That the ease with which, you know, one thing um, going wrong, one rubbing one person the wrong way can have just, I mean, disastrous consequence for the rest of your entire company. And I think that him sort of exploring his, his nature a little bit is an interesting part of the last act because you do have that bit where he sort of lets her, uh, lets her alone where you almost wonder um, when they reunite if he's going to be, you know, just how sweet is he going to be to her. Um, yeah. And, you know, when he does extend her an olive branch, it's at a cost. He's, you know, and I, and that's the interesting, that's part of his mystique and his mystery, that, that part that we can't exactly know because the film doesn't obviously telegraph it to us. Is all right, is he going to be sweet or is he going to, you know, push things a level further? Um which I mean, we we can see the the play happening out in the plot, so we know it's gonna it can only go one way. 
Right. But I think it's interesting that there is that that doubt for a moment. Yeah, definitely agree. Um, yeah, great stuff. Um, I think that's a pretty good note to end on. Uh, is there anything else that you'd like to uh, say about it that we didn't we didn't get to? No, not particularly. Um, I I think that. Uh, if one were to watch it, I would highly recommend the commentary just, uh, it's because it's one of those, um, that you don't exactly need to be watching the movie as you're listening to it. It's by, um, uh, Lord, forgive me. I forget his name. Um, but he's a historian. Uh, he leads it and he gets all these different characters, um, that participated in the restoration and, uh, he gets more a Shearer and Jack Cardiff to speak on it, mm. uh, at length in the, uh, commentary. So it's really easy to listen to on just the background if you're in a car ride, if you're doing stuff around the house. Um, so if you're someone who you know, has seen it before or is just going to see it sooner or eventually, I, I recommend that just as something you can throw on in the background because it's, it's highly enlightening since it takes such a historical vantage point. I definitely will. That sounds really cool, um, just based off the uh, anecdotes you've, you've given throughout the, the episode. Um, but yeah... yeah I'm, I'm, yeah, no, no credit to me for this for this whole thing. I, I've probably come <laughs> off a little smarter than I actually am. I just I just watched the commentary. <laughs> hey, don't put yourself down. You're, you're a smart guy at times. Oh, thank you. Of course, of course. Um, so the last part of the show, um, we kind of go over what we've been like watching recently, uh, listening to, or, or reading, uh, that kind of thing. So um, I'll give you a minute to uh, like pull up your your letterbox diary. Or something. Of course, uh, we'll do. <laughs> get, get your bearings in order to uh, figure out kind of what you've been doing. Um, All right, I'm ready. I'm ready. You ready? All right. So, so Josh, what have you been watching, reading, or listening to? Um, so I have been watching recently, um, the Minnelli films, the Vincent Minnelli films. Oh, um, cool. I've been going through them slow and steady. So maybe like one, one a month, maybe at that slow pace. Um. But I, I saw one recently that really took me. It was uh, Some Came Running with Frank Sinatra. Hmm. Uh, I, I saw that there was a deal on, on Amazon, and I, I picked up the Blu-ray, only 11 bucks, um, And I watched it uh, over this last weekend. And, um, I mean, we're talking now about a beautiful uh, color uh, feature from the 40s. Um, this is a beautiful, beautiful color feature from the 50s. Um, and I would say it has this... Uh, it's based on a novel. Um, I think it's by it's Arthur Sheikman. Um, I'm not sure, uh, but it's based on a novel, and it definitely has a literary tone. I haven't been huge on Minnelli just because he does have these big, boisterous, uh, you know, musical pieces. Because mm. a lot of what he a lot of what he made was musicals, and I'm not I'm not crazy about musicals. I I enjoy them from time to time, but you know, I've taken my due diligence with him because I know. You know, there's bound to be something I really like, and that was yeah, this film. I think it's uh, it's a very mature film. It has these. Uh, I mentioned that it was based on a book. It has these literary tones to it. I feel like it takes its its time in a in a way that feels quite different from other films of its period. It films it, it feels as if it was a film made and photographed in the 50s, of course, as it was, but written by someone almost with like you know, a 70s sensibility huh. um, That's really for, for this new, you know, way to pace a, a, a film story. Um, and I really liked it. Uh, I think 
Um, it's it's just beautifully photographed and very very wise. Um, I, I I use the word mature. I'll use it again. It's very mature, sort of knowing aged film. Um, and yeah, I highly recommend it. Uh, that's the last thing I saw that I was really um, taken by was Some Came Running by Vincent Minnelli. Cool. I might have to pick up that Blu-ray. Um, what's the, uh, is there like, is it like a genre film? Yeah, I would say, actually, I don't know if it would, it's kind of like a romantic drama. Um, okay. It, it, it involves Frank Sinatra's character sort of coming back to his hometown that he's been away from for all these years and sort of making amends, but also bringing with him um, all this baggage from his past life. Um, so it's almost as if these two things converge, his past and his present. And, uh, yeah, I would say I would say that's almost a, a straight-up uh, drama because it is there's a lot less room for, for goofiness than there is in a lot of uh, Minnelli's other films. Hmm. That's cool. Yeah, I haven't I haven't really seen anything by him, so uh, that seems like a good one to start with. I might I might pick that Blu-ray. It's still eleven dollars. Yeah, absolutely. I, I saw it was a limited time deal, so uh, so act now. Ooh, I shall act now. <laughs> I shall act now. Um, cool. Uh, have you been uh, reading anything or like listening to any new albums? Um, I've been listening to so. There's a band called Big Thief, and for a long while, I felt like they um, have been the best band out like i feel like all these times that there's been a clear you know best band mm-hmm. i've been all like before my time like oh nirvana like radiohead i feel like this is the first time i'm like living through there being a, a best band oh really um, wow and i, I feel agree. like it's them i yeah i feel like it's big thief i feel like they're like a clear they're like this sort of country alternative rock um group the uh lead singer adrian lenker she um does some solo stuff that even when it's just her, when it's her solo material, gorgeous, raw, full of like little mistakes and nuances that um, sort of show themselves through the production. Uh, And then lyrically, I think she's as good, if not a better poet than all these different um, Laurel Canyon seventies types like Neil Young, Joni Mitchell, Bob Dylan. I feel like if you were to drop her in those scenes, she would, you know, blow them all away. Damn, all uh, right. <laughs> so, so, yeah, high praise. So I feel like to put her in the midst of this band um, that she has, that they've been working together for almost a decade now, um, they all pull their weight so beautifully and add their own little intonations. And their brand new album is a 20-track double LP, almost, I guess, their white album, you could call it. Hmm. It's coming out tomorrow, so Friday. Oh, um, I, I was able to ca- catch a leak because I'm going to go see them in concert and I, I bought the CD and all that. So I, oh, I did sick. pick up the leak, you know, and <laughs> handle my heart. Um, and it's, you know, it's everything that I hoped it would be. It's full of, you know, spectacular knockout moments, just, you know, simple, subtle songs. Um, from one song to the next, you're getting something different. But every time it's something that I think is, quite frankly, once m- makes me want to almost put myself in a band. It's awesome. It makes me want to pick up and learn an instrument. Um, so I highly recommend that if you're into, you know, rock music or country music or anything in between, because um, I think they're special. Um, that's what I've been listening to. That's sick. Um, we just recommend listening to them uh, from the beginning, or is it like a certain album that I think I should start with? I think if you were to pick them up from anywhere, you'd be in good territory. 
okay. I'd say I'd say their very first album, like a lot of different groups, is a good. You you, you can see the starting points, um, and you can see, you know, what would develop into making them great. It's just good. Um, so I'd say anything from uh, their their album masterpiece and onward um, is gonna be you're in you're in a gold mine. Masterpiece. That's a that's a great name for an album. <laughs> yeah, it really is very cool very cool um all right uh have you been reading anything recently um not too much uh i'm starting my first george Eliot book um he was a english writer i've been on an english writer kick for a long long time oh cool um i, I think it's just something about the novelty of it knowing that you know these things are hundreds of years old and they still have some semblance of um, emotional reverberance for me now, you know, yeah. just, some, just some guy in Virginia, you know, it's, it feels almost mir- miraculous. That's the thing about literature, the way that it, it's had this longevity for, I mean, it's not so popular now, but it's still, you know, it's still an art and it's still, you know, it's not like some mysterious text that is written in runic, you know, can't understand it. No, it's like, like connecting with someone from hundreds of years you know, between us. Um, yeah, it feels almost miraculous at times. So uh, I just started her book, uh, Silas Murner, uh, mm. Marner, rather. Um, and that's, you know, I'm just a chapter deep. Um, but I've been, my reading has been pretty spotty since I uh, graduated with a degree in English literature. <laughs> uh, so I'm sure I'll hop back on the pony uh, sooner rather than later, though. Yeah, I, I it, for me it like comes in and out in like phases. It, it like depends yeah. if like a text is like really like gripping me or not. Um, mm-hmm. I've definitely like had times where like been reading the same book for like three or four months, and then I just like read another book it takes me like a week. Yep. Yeah. I mean, it's that damn attention span, you know, killed by my phone. It's yeah. uh, it's a challenge at times. For sure. For sure. Um, yeah, uh, I've been, let's see, last thing I watched uh, that I really liked was uh, I Shot Jesse James. Um, oh. That was uh, Sam Fuller's, like, debut film, um, and I'd, I hadn't seen anything by Fuller, uh, and that one just kind of, like, caught my eye, so I decided to put that one on, and I really, really liked it. So it's, um, of course, like, a Jesse James story about um, him and his relationship with uh, Robert Ford, who um, was a member of his gang, but then uh, killed him and got the reward. Mm-hmm. Um, so, like, uh, it, it's kind of like a like a condensed version of uh, the assassination of Jesse James, by the Coward mm-hmm. Robert Ford, which is one of my favorite movies. Um, but uh, this is interesting because, like, unlike that, which is um, more about kind of like the end of the West and uh, the way that like Western myth was created versus like the reality. Um, there's definitely a lot of that in I Shot Jesse James, but this one is more kind of about the. Um, uh, the consequences of like killing your best friend or like committing mm-hmm. this kind of like unforgivable act. So like, um, even, uh, if Robert Ford, uh, committed this, uh, killed, killed Jesse James, like purely out of the goodness of his heart. Cause in this, in this movie, he has like a love interest that, um, so mm-hmm. he killed Jesse James so that, um, he can like marry this girl, uh, and like settle down. But, um, it kind of shows how like, yeah, even if he has, like, a good good intentions, this he kind of, like, commits this, like, unforgivable act, like, this, like, ultimate, like, act of betrayal. Mm-hmm. Um, and, like, how he, he's kind of, like, fated to, to um, 
to to doom because of that so it's pretty pretty interesting it's kind of like this uh it's it's more like moralistic which uh, makes sense uh-huh. for like the time period but uh yeah i thought it was i thought it was an excellent film definitely uh excited to check out some more uh, sam fuller soon yeah i i enjoy fuller quite a bit and I, I haven't seen that one i think isn't that his his debut film right yeah yeah it was his debut yeah i th- i'm i'm sure it's, it has a lot of his trademarks still the visceral that visceral uh feel to it i'm sure it's still there oh yeah for sure the uh, the final gun gunfight is like very very visceral especially for the time um there's this really cool thing where um in that gunfight whenever it like cuts to a close-up or medium close-up of um robert ford he's uh, filmed with like an all-black background which like makes like mm. no sense for the context of like where uh the fight's taking place but it creates this like really like interesting effect yeah that sounds like perfect territory for fuller to be in i I definitely have that as something to watch for sure for sure yeah so which uh, which fuller have you seen uh i have seen um shock corridor i have seen a uh, pickup on i think it's 42nd street mm-hmm. um and then i think i've also seen um gosh i can't remember the name of it i think it's one of his uh war films no Steel it's no it's uh the naked kiss not at all a war oh, okay. film, but it was a noir film the naked kiss uh those are the three i've seen gotcha. from him yeah uh, i definitely want to check out uh white dog yeah uh, that's one that seems uh as a late fuller i'm definitely interested in what his uh his late period uh might look like yeah that looks really interesting i definitely want to get to that at some point but like i was i was kind of like um very i was very pleasantly surprised by jesse james that i kind of want to like go through a lot of his like films in order maybe like save that mm-hmm. one for last but yeah um i'll definitely check that out at some point um i think pick up on south street is leaving the criterion channel at the end of the month so i'm gonna try to catch that before that leaves for sure yeah i don't i that's probably been my favorite of his that was one that yeah. i saw uh and then i i wasn't taken by it right away and then as you know time's gone on i've been like wow yeah pick up on on uh is it south street yeah south street yeah okay pick up on south street like what a, what a film i've uh i might you know see that again before it leaves too because i mean i think that's my favorite so far cool yeah um uh in terms of what i've been reading um i finished susan sontag is against interpretation relatively recently hmm. then i read um joan didion's uh slashing towards bethlehem which is really good that was like the first thing of didion i'd really ever read yeah, I remember um, you told me uh, when you were in the middle of it, you, you enjoyed that one? Yeah, yeah, that was great. That was great. The uh, the titular essay is, like, probably the highlight there. In- mm-hmm. Incredible essay. It's, like, it's it's really cool how she's she, like, captures this period that, that really feels like um, America was kind of, like, at the end of something. The end of, like, um, these, like, moral values that founded this country, like, ever really having meaning kind of like mm-hmm. just like deteriorating in the 60s so it's really 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 interesting stuff i'd highly recommend um certainly that essay slashing towards bethlehem and the entire book too is great um and uh right now i'm in the middle of this um sam peck and pop biography that i mentioned earlier yeah um, i recently went on like a peck and pop binge um mm-hmm. i think yeah you, you did you did that like a couple years ago right i did yeah i i think i got all the major ones there might be some I guess what might be regarded duds that I, I mm. guess I, I might have neglected, but uh, in my infinite wisdom now, you know, two years later, 
I know that uh, sometimes even the duds are worth watching, so I might have to go back and uh, watch some of those. But yeah, I, yeah. I think Peckinpah is great. Yeah, um, yeah, I think that uh, I, I'm probably like at the end of my my Peckinpah journey for now. There's definitely a few I have left to see, but uh, I think I'm, I think I'm all Peckinpah out for now. Mm-hmm. But um, <laughs> that uh, yeah, that book is really good. It's called um, uh, what's it called? Uh, damn it. Uh, if they move, kill them. It's like ah, the the fam- cool. yeah the, fa- the famous <laughs> line from uh, just before the uh, credits drop in um, Wild Bunch. Mm-hmm. Uh, the life and times of Sam Peckinpah, and it's it's good. It's like honestly, it's very very depressing. <laughs> yeah, he's I he's bet. just I mean, like a total piece of shit. Yeah, I mean, whenever I was watching all those movies, um, I read stuff by Pauline Kael mm-hmm. uh, because she knew him personally. Oh I really? Like, I didn't know. You know that. Yeah, so already with her being, you know, a uh, highly opinionated but great critic, yeah. um, I definitely wanted to see what she had to say uh, about movies from a man that she knew personally and also who was a controversial character himself. And uh, she, I definitely, you know, went into that Peck and Paul watch with her guidance um, always yeah. in my head a little bit. Um, and, yeah, that... that uh, I forget what I was gonna say, but yeah, I, I, I if you haven't read that that kale stuff, um, I think it's just you know if you just Google, I can paw kale. Uh, it, it it should be free to read. I remember reading reading it without having to go through any paywalls or anything. So yeah, I recommend that. Yep. Yeah, I'll definitely check that out. I think I, I like um I follow this this cool account on Letterbox that um like posts like old Pauline kale reviews um so like i've been kind of like reading through some of those as i've been as i've been like going along um but yeah i mean like this guy was really really messed up dude he he did have like a pretty like privileged childhood but um his parents like did like kind of mess him up just yeah. like yeah and, and he just like took into uh alcoholism and womanizing because of that but yeah it's um i think that the book does a little bit too much like psychologizing unfortunately like it, it, it draws too many I, I don't like it when like um critics draw too many connections between like an artist's personal life and like stuff that happens like in their art i think mm-hmm. that like it's useful to a certain extent but if you go too far into it it gets kind of like meaningless it kind of the, the art kind of like loses the its value like um, yeah it, it gets like distracting i think i think especially with the um nature of time you know since since he's been you know passed away for for decades now you know the further away you get from him being alive the the less you're able to i think accurately pull from his personal life and you know make connections to his work i think it's something that's like a lot more you know you're able to do a lot more if you know you're in like an interview setting with someone who is right there in front of you and you can ask personalized stuff and maybe i guess draw your own conclusions to a certain degree but yeah i think with you know sam being uh gone for all these years and you know him already being this sort of (laughs) guy who in the public imagination just these craziness like yeah like the message that he makes i'm sure that there's a lot of yeah i I can see how that would get tiring (laughs) yeah yeah but i mean yeah to, to the credit of the author like he was very messed up <laughs> yeah um but yeah it's a, it's an interesting read for sure um uh, very, very depressing but i was just i'm just too obsessed with sam pick and right now to not read it so i had to um 
course. I might, I might have to check that out myself too. And uh, yeah, I can probably rewatch because I, I want to see Pet Barrett and Billy the Kid again. Yeah, uh, that I was just, that was actually just, my favorite one of his that I that I watched so far. Yeah, I'm just so torn on there being like these different versions that I'm like, it would be nice if some like, you know distributor were to just you know put in my lap in the near future some like you know complete or full version edition or whatever but i'm not gonna hold my breath that'd be uh, great i might just i might just watch what we have <laughs> yeah unfortunately like almost like all of sam pick and Paws films were like kind of like butchered by the studio like um major dundee was probably the worst example of that um although actually uh i think it was like last year arrow video put out a um uh, quote-unquote producer's cut of Major Dundee, huh. which is, like, um, nowhere near the, I think, like, near three-hour version that Peckinpah did, but I think mm. it's about, like, 12 minutes more than the theatrical cut, and it redoes the music, too, which I think was very pivotal, because, like, um, the music in, in the original film kind of, like, suggests uh, this, like, grand, triumphant epic, and, like, Major Dundee yeah. being, like, this great hero, but in reality, <laughs> like, um, Sam Peckinpah wanted to do like, quote, Moby Dick on horseback, with uh, with Major Dundee. Um, yeah, I actually I picked up that uh, that uh, Arrow video like limited edition of that recently, and um, let me tell you, I, <laughs> I I think that it's one of his best films, even in this like huh. kind of butchered version that that we currently have. Um, I think it's just an incredible movie. I really, really would highly recommend that. Um, honestly, like up there with with my favorites of his, um, hmm. Pat Garrett, Alfredo Garcia, yeah. Yeah, I'll have to check that out for sure because that's one I haven't seen. And you know, I'm a firm believer that you know a studio can annihilate a picture and it still be a, a great. I mean, I like yeah. I like Ambersons more than I like Kane, so that's uh, a <laughs> first in the pudding there. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, yeah unfortunately it's the case but you know if you're if you're that good of a director some of the brilliance still shines through that's right can't can't keep a good horse down that's for sure well on that note josh thanks so much for uh for joining us joining me i guess yeah it's been a pleasure and yeah thanks for having me for sure for sure um excellent pick and uh hope to see you again soon of course all right that's it from us goodbye